Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of LSHTM Viral. I'm Amy Thomas from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. This time we're bringing you a special episode where two of our outbreak experts answer questions from the audience in real time. We had some really great and varied questions come in, so thank you again for those who got involved. I found the discussion extremely interesting and really enjoyed chatting to Jimmy and Roz. If you do want to watch the video as well as listen to it, then you can find the video on the LSHTM YouTube channel. 15, 20% of people who are infected are going to get serious illness and are going to need hospitalisation. We don't know that children are less susceptible to this. If you close a school, that causes major disruption. We need to learn the lessons from what was done there because it really does look like the epidemic is subsiding. I don't think the time is right to introduce things which are going to cause a lot of social disruption. It's our responsibility as a community to do that, to help everybody. We can't control this without the general public being engaged in involved and supportive. Hello and welcome to this week's special episode of LSHTM Viral Live from WPP Studios in London. My name is Amy Thomas and I'm from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. The LSHTM Viral podcast was created to bring you the latest evidence on COVID-19 directly from our academic experts. We've been asking you to submit questions along the way, so thank you to those of you who have done that already. And because we've had so many queries, we've decided to bring you a special Q&A session so you can ask your questions directly to our experts. So in the studio, we have Jimmy Whitworth, who is a professor of international public health at LSHDM. Jimmy has worked on previous outbreaks such as Ebola and directed public health responses to them. Jimmy, hi, welcome and thanks for coming in. Thank you. And we also have Rosalind Ego, who is an infectious disease modeler at LSHGM, working on real-time research for the COVID-19 outbreak. Hi, Ros. Thanks for coming in. So before we begin with some questions that we've already had from our listeners, um, should we just have a quick overview of where we are with the outbreak? Jimmy, do you want to lead on that? Sure. Um, so just over two months ago, this epidemic started in central China. It appears to have been a spillover event from other mammals that got into the human population. It's um, a respiratory virus, it causes a pneumonia, and it spread very rapidly. WHO declared this to be a public health emergency of international concern, their highest level of alert after a month of this outbreak. And now we have over 90,000 cases, more than 3,000 deaths, it's present on five continents around the world, and it is continuing to expand. Thanks, Jimmy. And Roz, do you have anything to add to that? No, that's where we are right now. We're seeing increasing numbers of cases in other countries, and that's really changing how we think about this. And let's launch in with some questions that we've already had from the podcast. So it's just been great to um, see everyone's engagement. Um, we've had a question from Simone Topino, listening from Iceland. Um, Simone asks, what are the drivers behind the emergence of new epidemics and eventually pandemics? Um, there's a whole range of different things that can cause uh, an epidemic to, to spread in a human population. One is urbanisation, having a lot of people living in a crowded area, living close to animals. We share 70% of our bugs with other animals, so it's easy to, to get them from those. Um, things like war, 
um, humanitarian crises, breakdown of public health services are all important for this. And once you have an outbreak, things like agricultural practices, moving into the forests, um, transportation are all important ways to make an epidemic continue. Thanks, Jimmy. And, and Ros, do you have anything to add to that? No, it's, that's, that's everything. <laughs> and um, what measures are being um, undertaken by the international health com care community? Well, so when you have an emergence and you start to have new cases, the first thing is to have a surveillance system that can pick them up. And that's what happened, you know, in the middle of the flu season, this cluster of atypical pneumonia cases picked it up. And then at that point, you, if you think this is a transmissible infection, then the public health responses will attempt to contain it. So that'll be tr finding cases, isolating them, tracing their contacts, things like this. Um, but if, it's, if it turns out that it's not possible to, to contain outbreaks and epidemics, then public health responses will move more towards mitigation, which means to try and take measures that will decrease the burden on the population as a whole, decrease the burden on health systems, and ultimately try and end up with the best possible outcome under, for, the, for the whole population um, under the circumstances. And can you do both of these things at once or do you have to do them separately? Uh, well, we, usually there's a phased plan. Obviously, there's a lot of different public health interventions and measures that happen at the same time. Lots of things, lots of um, preparedness activities. That means getting ready. Um, at the same time that there might be contact tracing and things to try and contain an epidemic, you're also going to be getting your surveillance systems ready, getting your plans in place, preparing your hospitals, health systems, and everyone else to understand what might happen if you need to step to the next part of the phase of the plan. Brilliant, thanks, Ros. And we've just had a question come in from Irene Balzan. Um, is a person infectious during the incubation period before they start experiencing symptoms? So this is something that's been brought up quite, quite a lot in the media. What's the answer? So this is a really important thing that for what I do is I make transmission models that help you understand the transmission process from one person to another, which helps you understand what might happen in the population. And this kind of information do people transmit before they start to show symptoms is really crucial because it has a big impact on how controllable the, uh, the epidemic is. Because if you say to people, if your public health recommendation is once you feel ill, stay at home, but if you've already done some of your transmitting before you feel ill, it's more difficult to stop. And this is true for something like flu, where we think that people become infectious uh, a day or so before they start to show symptoms. But it wasn't true for things like SARS, which is a, a different infection. But for that one, people don't become, in, they didn't become infectious until they showed symptoms. And so this is a key unknown. There are some early hints that there is some transmit, there may be some transmission before the onset of symptoms, but we don't know if that is kind of part of the prodrome. So this kind of idea of mild symptoms, you're starting to feel unwell, but you don't really put it together. So there's some hints that this is happening, but it's by no means a closed question and it's really important. And this unknown, how is that affecting our response to this outbreak? I think one of the issues here is that if you just feel very mildly ill, you might simply carry on as normal and you might not report to health facilities or change your behaviour in any way. And that really in practical terms is just the same as being without any symptoms. 
in practice. And so we do have to alert um, members of the general public that if they are starting to feel unwell and they might possibly have been exposed to this coronavirus, that they should isolate, keep away from people. Yeah, and I think that's a lot of the public health messaging that's been going out. Um, so we've had, uh, thank you both for that. Uh, we've had another question come in from Jackson. Um, what is your opinion on mortality rates? It's quite general, but um, do you want to take a start? Um, sure. Um, the, it's very difficult at the start of outbreaks to calculate what we call the um, case fatality ratio. So that's the number of um, confer well, the number of cases who um, go on to unfortunately die. There's also the infection fatality ratio, which is the number of people who are infected. They don't necessarily show symptoms who go on to die. And it's very difficult in the early stages of an epidemic to calculate this because you might know your number of cases, but these people have not had their outcome. So you don't know if they've unfortunately died or if they recover. And so you have to use statistical techniques to correct for that um, for that, uh, for not knowing the outcome. So it makes it very difficult. Um, and that is a lot of work that we're doing at the moment, trying to get the information. The key message that, that does seem to be fairly consistent is that this does have a relatively higher mortality than other respiratory pathogens that we're familiar with. And there are, there do seem to be strong age dependence in the risk of um, death on infection either on infection or if you're a confirmed case. So that does seem to rise for older individuals. And, and how do the mortality um, rates, how does that in, impact public health decisions? Is there kind of thresholds that if there's a certain number reached, there might be a decision taken, for example? It all plays into the public health response that we have. If all the cases pretty much are mild, as we saw when we had the H1N1 epidemic a few years ago, then... Um, you simply let the population become infected and there's nothing that needs to be done. You're going to have very few people who are sick. With something like this virus, of the order of 15, 20% of people who are infected are going to get serious illness and are going to need hospitalization. So you need to have facilities available so that you're able to um, look after those people when they're sick. It looks as though people are ill for about 10 to 14 days on average. So that means you're looking at a fairly lengthy stay in hospital. So um, you need to be prepared for that. Great, thank you. And Jackson, I hope that answers your question. Um, question from Helen that's come in. Um, are there any known risk factors for infection and severity of illness other than age, like smoking or drinking? Uh, for for infection, uh, I'm, I'm not sure because this really depends on, um, you know, meet, you, you have to meet somebody who has it in order to catch it. For mortality, yes, there are known risk factors. This is information coming out of the early um, outbreaks, the epidemic in China. Having pre-existing conditions it are risk factors. Uh, the question of smoking, I mean, you can comment on that, Jimmy, that yeah. Um, so those risk factors, other diseases, things like diabetes, cardiovascular disease are uh, clear risk factors here. Um, smoking is a risk factor for respiratory 
pathogens generally and for hospitalization. If people are smokers, they tend to do less well in hospital and if they have pneumonia. So again, there's a message there. Yeah. I mean, so would, would we advise, would you advise people, you know, to reduce smoking rates to stop coronavirus infections? I'd recommend stopping uh, smoking generally anyway, and it will be in everybody's self-interest if they stop smoking, if they're at risk, as I think we all are, of getting this new virus. Great. Thanks, Jimmy. Um, so I hope that answers your question, Helen. Uh, question from Sedalia uh, Serbio. Uh, what is the proportion of patients that may require intensive care? Studies are suggesting 5%. Do we have any comments on that? It is a fairly high percentage, but I don't know the numbers. And these things are changing all the time as we um, as we under as the epidemic reaches new places, as we get more and better data. So the the ratios are high, but I don't know the exact numbers and estimates right now. It's going to be of that sort of order, yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, and so Claire asks, how, uh, we know companies are racing to develop the first vaccine, uh, but do we know wh when the treatments are going to become available? So, Jimmy, do you um, Yeah, so there's two elements to this. I think one's about vaccines, which would be to prevent, and one's about uh, therapeutics, which would be for people who are actually infected. For viruses, there, uh, for vaccines, sorry, there's... Um, 20 to 25 uh, different candidate vaccines that are in production at the moment. Um, we need to refine that number down to the, the, the front runners that can be tested in the future. And that will be uh, uh, two or three probably that we'd, we'd take forward there. I think if everything goes well, it would be at least a year, probably more like 18 months before a vaccine could be tested, shown to be safe, efficacious, and actually produced in enough numbers to be useful to control an epidemic. It looks like that's going to be too slow for certainly this first wave of the epidemic that we might have here. But if there were to be subsequent waves of this, then it could be useful there. Now, in terms of drugs, therapeutics, um, the fastest way to do that is to identify drugs which are already tested and used in a human population and to determine if they work in this situation. And there's really two antiviral drugs. Uh, treatments that are being tested currently in China. And we should have the first results coming out from those in the next one or two weeks, which, if they're positive, are things that could be rolled out um, worldwide very quickly. Great. So that's quite promising that there's some great work going on, high-speed science that's happening there too. They're definitely yeah, trying, yeah. 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 I mean, there's something like 80 different clinical trials going on in China at the moment. Wow. And this is really revolutionary for, for, for things to try and move at this speed. This is yeah. as fast as it can be. And you mentioned a second wave. How likely is that? I mean, compared to previous outbreaks, do we know anything about how that might pan out? Um, so it, it's really, really difficult to say at this point because we've seen only um, we've seen the, the epidemics happening in China. We're starting to see some introductions in other places, and we're starting to understand transmission. So part of the reason that people are concerned about this is because during the two thousand and nine flu pandemic, we saw a wave in April, May, June, 
that went away over the summer and came back in September. And this was because of the key role of children in transmission in, this, in that particular outbreak. And so when the schools closed for summer, children's contact patterns go way down and that, um, that pushed the epidemic away. When the children went back to school, it came back. We do not know if that is going to happen this time. It's something that we are trying to figure out, we are trying to understand, because if that is a possibility, we want to know as soon as possible. But So that's why people are concerned, and the short answer is we don't really know at this point. Thanks, Roz. Um, so some great questions coming in. Thank you all for tuning in uh, with your questions. Um, we got a question from Jamie um, asking about travel. What, what, is travel, what is the travel advice uh, to low and middle income countries in consideration of screening and surveillance measures? At the moment, um, information is being uh, produced by national authorities on travel to various countries around the world. Now, they're, of course, based on documented cases that occur. And so we know places like Italy, Iran, South Korea, they've got a large number of cases. So there's advice about that. For low middle income countries where the surveillance might not be so good, we might not know of any cases, but there could still be a risk of getting it while you're there. So I think the advice increasingly um, needs to be really think twice about traveling um, internationally at the moment, because um, while it may be safe now, by the time you want to come back, you might find that there's a documented epidemic. Great. Thank you, Jimmy. And Jamie, I hope that answers your question. Um, a similar question from Dominic. What will the travel situation be in London, say, in a month's time? Very specific. We can't uh, yeah, tell I can't answer stage. that. Sorry. <laughs> there, and I, but, but an explanation of why I can't answer that is that, you know, we're starting to see some cases in, in the UK. And, um, but there, there's a lot of randomness at this point in the epidemic. When there's some cases, there's some transmission but we don't, we're starting to get our surveillance system so that we can understand better. But right now it's very difficult to make predictions and projections without uncertainty. And if I were to make a prediction for a month's time, the, what we call the uncertainty interval, so how much we believe in our estimate, would go all the way from basically one case to you know, 50,000 cases. Th that's just normal for how we, how we try and work these things out and how when we get more information, we can bring that uncertainty down. So right now, it's, it's really difficult to make project specific yeah. projections. And, you know, I could tell you that without doing the modelling. <laughs> That's great. Thank you. Um, and talking about transmission, you explained how difficult it is to track at this point and there's so many parameters that you have to take into consideration. Do we know um, what the transmission rates are in lower tropical and subtropical regions? A question from Chow. We don't at the moment, no. There's, there's no information on that. There have been very few cases that have been reported from low and middle income countries and really no chains of transmission yet. So it's still too early to say. And um, we spoke a bit earlier about the risks and some of the um, things that might exacerbate the uh, infection rates. There's a question from Amy about the impact that the climate is having on this outbreak. Are there differences in the behaviour of the virus in warmer slash colder environments? 
We don't know yet. This is a novel virus. We've not seen this before. It's only been in the human population for two months, so we don't know. But if we extrapolate from other similar respiratory viruses and coronaviruses, we can anticipate that there'll be some seasonality and that they'll be worse in the wintertime and relatively better in the summertime. What that means for tropical regions is less clear. It may mean that there's continuous circulation. Yeah, and just also emphasize that, you know, up in in Europe, we see these winter peaks of a lot of respiratory viruses, but they do circulate in the tropics. And as we said, year round at different times. And it is not like there's very little, there's plenty of flu and other respiratory infections. So even if there is some seasonality, that it doesn't mean that there won't be cases. Thank you for clarifying that. And I hope that answers your question. Um, so we've had a few questions about um, whether you can catch the disease several times. Can you explain that from the scientific perspective, how that, that could pan out? Uh, uh, yeah, I'll have a go yeah, at that yeah. one. Um, there have been a few uh, case reports of people who were positive for this, so presumably infected, became negative, so presumably cleared it, and then became positive again. Now, whether that actually reflects the true biological situation, and they did get infected, cleared it, and then became reinfected, or whether there were false positive, false negative diagnostic tests, is a bit unclear at the moment, and so that's not entirely certain. But if we look at some of the other related um, coronaviruses, it does appear that in some people, if you get mild infection, you either get no immunity at all or it's only fairly limited. So I think it is plausible that you might be able to get reinfected quite quickly with this virus. And would that, would that be the same strain or how does, would it mutate? How does that work? Um, yeah, I, I it, it probably would be. Um, you know, if your immunity has gone away again, then you could get infected with the, with the same strain. That would be easier to get infected with a slightly different strain. Thanks, Jimmy. Um, so we've um, got a question from Mo. Um, how do we know that it was an endemic to China? Could it have existed somewhere else before, but we weren't testing for it? I think that's plausible. Um, Could certainly, it had not been documented in being in a human population before, and it doesn't look like there's any immunity to there. But um, we think it probably came from bats in the first place. Now, uh, bats carry several thousand different coronaviruses, and many of them have not been properly documented in the past. So um, it could have been in the population before. What, what I will say, though, is that using genetic information from the virus, so that's when you take the sample from, from somebody who's got it, you sequence the genome, so you find out what this genetic material is, and what you can do is compare those, and you can work backwards in time and say, what was the, what, when was it that these, la that these um, viruses had their most, common, most recent common ancestor? So when were they... Um, when does the tree converge? When was the most recent time that they were all related? And that work has been done and shows that the, um, that the 
the what they call the time to most recent common ancestor was sometime in late November with a confidence bound from October to December, which is consistent with reports of a spillover event then. So I don't think that it's... Um, yeah, I totally agree that you need to know what you're looking for in order to find it. But for this particular outbreak, it does look from the genetics like it goes back to around the spillover event that we... And locationally, that was in China, was it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you mentioned that bats carry several thousand different strains. Why? Um, bats seem to have evolved to be able to um, tolerate... Uh, viral infections. I mean, they all live very close together, which means that it's very easy for viruses to, to, to spread amongst them. And um, they are unusual as a mammalian species for being able to harbour, without any ill effects, a lot of different viruses. Oh, interesting. Thanks, Jimmy. Um, thank you all again for tuning in with your questions. These are some really good questions. Um, questions. Yeah, yeah, so thank really. you all for that. Uh, question from Mark. Um, how easily can the virus be transmitted on public transport like a busy underground train? Um, so specifics for um, trains and things, it's really difficult to say. But what we do know um, from the early phase of the outbreak that on average, each infectious person infected about two or three other people. So this is called the reproduction number. It's the average number of secondary cases caused by each infection. And so we think at the beginning, and if you don't take any control measures, that is around two or three. So if you think about, um, you know, your daily life, uh, and you make a lot of contacts, on average, amongst all of those contacts, people in the early phase of the epidemic infected about two or three other people. So as we get more information, we'll begin to have, you know, more, more certainty about some of these key parameters. But this one, this um, this average number of secondary cases, the reproduction number, we think, we expect when, when it arrives in a population that is not taking any control measures, that it will be around two or three. And do we know if the cases that we've already looked at, if they were using public transport, and is that number still the average from, from that? In the UK, you mean? Yeah. A lot of the cases in the UK at the moment are people who have had travel to affected regions. Some are not, and that is what we need to understand, that we have imported cases, we try and prevent transmission from them, but there are there is some onward transmission. And yeah, so that's what, a key thing we need to understand, understand next. Thanks, Roz. Um, so a question from Godos. Godos, um, if people are contagious pre-symptom, which we spoke about, what, what steps can people take to prevent the spread of the disease but not live in panic? I think this um, really takes us into the, the social distancing area here. Um, now, when we're all potentially at risk getting it, there are a number of different things that we can do. And they would include washing your hands, and doing that very regularly, or if you're somewhere where you can't, then using hand gel on a regular basis. Try to avoid touching your face, particularly your eyes and your mouth, after you've touched potentially contaminated surfaces. Um, wash down and clean potentially contaminated surfaces is, if you can as well. Avoid people who've got acute respiratory illnesses, Try as much as you can to avoid crowded situations where you might be uh, breathing the air of a number of different people at the same time. Um, 
practicing cough etiquette, which is perhaps an unfamiliar term to many, but what that means is that if you are going to cough and splutter, do it into a tissue and then uh, bin that tissue responsibly and wash your hands after you've done it. And if you haven't got a tissue on you, then um, cough and sneeze into your elbow. <laughs> great, thanks Jimmy, some great advice there um, that people can take to help stop the spread. Um, so, some great questions coming in. Um, Zaleem asks, is it possible that there could be genes or people resistant to the virus? Um, it's possible that these things exist, but this is not something we're seeing so far. Um, and I, I wouldn't expect that. I wouldn't expect to see a strong signal for that. Um, for instance, we, we don't really see that for flu. And so it's possible, but it's unlikely. And it's not, if we're, we're thinking about what might affect the burden that we see in other countries and whatever, the most important thing is these social distancing measures that Jimmy mentioned and the hygienic measures. Great. Thanks, Ros. It's good to clarify these things. Um, and so Jing Yong Park um, asks, do we look for mild cases as well as severe ones? I think we touched on this before. Um, and if so, how do we do that if we're relying on self-reporting? It's very hard if you're doing it just on, on self-reporting. And that is why in the UK we've introduced a community-based screening, um, actually using um, uh, people going to GP practices and the like who aren't necessarily complaining of respiratory infections or uh, coronavirus or any exposure to it, so that we start to get some sort of measure of what the rate is in the in the community. And it's that's going to be really helpful information for us to model what will yep. happen in the future and also to plan what our public health response needs to be. That's great. And yeah. do you have anything? No, I about? totally agree with Jimmy to understand what we call the, um, the the pyramid of severity. So we have this pyramid at the at the top of it, the smallest number of cases is the people who unfortunately die. Then you have severe cases, mild cases, and potentially subclinical or asymptomatic cases. And we need to understand the shape of that pyramid. Is it very narrow and we see a lot of deaths? Or is it more broad and there's a very lot of mild cases? And understanding that, as Jimmy says, is absolutely critical for our planning, not just in the short term, but also some of these questions about what might happen in the future. And um, where are we? I know we touched on this before. Where are we with that pyramid now? What's it looking like now? Or do we not have enough data to, to find that, that information yet? Um, it, as, as I mentioned before, that we have this, uh, it really looks like there's an age-specific um, increase in mortality in older adults. So giving, it's difficult to give a population level case fatality or infection fatality ratio because that masks that. So um, we're doing some analysis uh, in the Centre for Mathematical Modelling at London School and we're actively doing some work on these ratios, which will be um, online, I think, today or tomorrow. So you can have a look there for the numbers. So they don't want to give you the, the, the wrong numbers. Fair, fair enough, and we can post the link in the description box um, to where you can find that information if you're interested. Um, great, thanks for the questions. Um, we've got we've got some more coming in, so we'll just carry on. Um, from Paola, um, what do you think about containment measures such as the ones we've seen in Italy with school closures? Are they enough? That's a good question. 
question. Go yeah, on. well, I think a couple of things to say here. Um, school closures are particularly valuable if children are big drivers of the epidemic that is going on. As Ros mentioned before, in, in flu, that's often a good way to actually control an epidemic. Um, of course, if it's the school holidays, then shut anyway and, and the numbers go down. For this virus, there's no strong evidence that I've seen suggesting that children are major drivers of transmission or that they suffer particularly from this. So I'm sceptical about how useful school closures will be for actually controlling the epidemic. And on the other side of that, if you close a school, that causes major disruption. That means that parents have to take time off work to look after the children who are, are not there. So it's not a measure that you want to take lightly. So I don't see any evidence, certainly in the UK, mm. uh, at the moment that closing schools would be useful. Yeah. The other thing that they've done in Italy is that where they've identified that there are, if you like, hotspots of infection and transmission going on, they've instituted what you might call community quarantine, which is saying people in that specific area should not be moving out of that. And that is to protect the general public elsewhere from becoming infected. It's not going to be foolproof. We've seen in Italy, cases in the south of Italy as well. So it's it's not going to prevent everything. But that could be a more effective way. And that, I think, is what might happen quite a lot in Europe if we get focal outbreaks, that people will be asked to stay in their communities. And I think and I totally agree with... Um, with what Jimmy said there, but we need to also look to the experience of the epidemic that happened in China, where they did really big, really strong social distancing measures to try and push down this reproduction, to push down the, the transmission rate. And, you know, you know, we need to learn the lessons from what was done there, because it really does look like the epidemic is subsiding, and figure out what what we can do in the UK that mirrors what happened and worked there and um, really to understand what did and didn't work. So can you just remind our viewers what, what did they do in China just simply? Uh, well it's not simple because it was, it's an extremely big country, regional things were regional, there was regional differences in interventions. In Wuhan there was like, uh, which is the where it originally started, they stopped travel. They um, asked people to stay at home. People, there was a lot of, all the schools were closed. They were closed already for um, the Lunar New Year and um, decreases in contact patterns. And so, you know, if we are in the UK asked to do some of these type of measures to increase the social distance between people, to decrease our contact rates, to take hygienic measures, it's our responsibility as a community to do that to help everybody, help ourselves and help everybody to bring down this tr transmission rate and try and decrease the burden. So there's none of these measures are requested right now, but we have to be alert to when they are. It's all of our jobs to help, to help push this down. And when will we be alert to when these changes will need to happen? We don't know yet. We don't know yet. I mean, if we look in the, in the UK, there have been less than 100 cases so far. Um, and the vast majority of those have been imported from, from elsewhere with uh, very little 
documented transmission within the UK at the moment. So I don't think the time is right to introduce things which are going to cause a lot of social disruption at this stage. But the public health authorities need to continue to monitor the situation and need to be flexible in the response. And as Ros says, the community involvement and participation in this is absolutely crucial. We can't control this without the general public being engaged and involved and supportive. Yeah. And so we'll look to the Department of Health and the public health authorities for when those measures should come. Absolutely. Thanks, Jimmy and Ros. Um, so we've got some great questions coming in. Thank you again for tuning in. Um, it's been a really good discussion to hear from you, um, you know, what things you want to hear from, from us. Um, so we've got a question from Nikita. In countries like India, where public health infrastructure is less robust, uh, do you think the virus has spread more than we know? I mean, we touched on this earlier about perhaps, you know, not having the screening methods to, to find out how many cases there have been. What's your take on, on that, perhaps in India? It's possible. I mean, for most countries which have had um, outbreaks occurring, like in South Korea, in um, Italy, Iran, it is the severe cases that alert us to the fact that there must be an epidemic that is going on in, in that country. So I think we, on, on the one hand, we will expect in countries with the weaker public health infrastructure that it will be an unusual pneumonia that comes along that, that will alert them that they might have cases and they need to investigate. But also a lot of work is going on at the moment to actually strengthen surveillance um, in countries with weak infrastructure so that they are able to identify people. And from a situation a month ago where there were only two countries in Africa that were able to, to diagnose it, that is now something like 35 countries that have the, the capacity. So that's really being expanded. So there's the two things, identifying the severe cases, but also making sure you've got diagnostic testing available. And yeah, I really enjoyed your point about kind of communicating between countries to make sure that, you know, people have the surveillance that they need. And how, how are we doing that? How are we making sure that we're kind of sharing methods and supporting, you know, worldwide? Well, um, certainly in Africa, you've got the Africa Union, which is bringing together governments to make sure that happens. And you've also got the Africa CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, which is operating throughout the continent to really advise countries on how to do this and trying to get a consistent approach. And WHO also provides a lot of coordination on a global level. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, Great, thank you. And so we've had having lots of questions. Um, we'll just carry on for a couple of more minutes before we have to end the session. Um, so we've got a question from Elisabetta about community screening. Again, we touched on this point, she's, but she's asking, um, how does it work? Does the GP call you or do you go in yourself? So more of a sort of um, frontline question. Not sure I, I understand quite the question. The so community surveillance in the UK will probably be that um, GPs who find a suspected case may or may not will, will request a test. But do you have any more details, Jimmy? Yeah, I think it is um, based on patients going to see their GP. 
Okay, great. And um, we'll just do one more question and then we'll, we'll have to wrap up, but we will try and answer your questions, um, you know, on the on the back of the video. And if you've got any more questions, you can contact comms at lshcm.ac.uk. Uh, so the last question we'll have uh, from Laura, and she's asking, do we know why children are less susceptible to this? We don't know that children are less susceptible to this. We don't know if children, at the moment, if children are not or have a lower chance of getting ill if they meet an infectious person, or that they have a lower chance of showing symptoms. There's um, more. There's some biological plausibility that children are do not get a severe infection, which means that they're less likely to be reported. And one key thing that can answer this is what we call serology. So that is if you um, look for the presence of uh, immune response to the virus, in, usually in the blood, after afterwards then that can usually tell you if somebody has had it but it's this serology is um, these kind of tests are very specific to the exact pathogen and they needed to be developed so that there was no test to look for this look for the the signals of immune response in the body because it, this virus didn't exist so these are tests that are being developed and will be really useful for truly helping us understand the role of children whether they're just generally not getting it as a high rates as we expect or whether they are getting it but not getting severely ill so we don't notice these infections. And it's important to note also that in China, because of the Lunar New Year holiday, schools were, have mostly been closed for this epidemic, which as I said before, decreases children's contact patterns. So it's not straightforward to say, or we don't see many cases in children, this means this is not straightforward. And we need, we do need to understand this. Great. And I, I hope that answers the question a bit, you know, explaining some of those unknowns. And I want to give a massive thank you to Jim and Roz for, for taking up their time in this very busy period that we're going through and coming in to answer your questions. And I hope you found that useful and interesting. I also want to say thank you to WP Health Practice for helping us stream this live to you. Uh, they've been great. And um, yeah, thank you to everyone that's been involved. Make sure you subscribe to LSHGM Viral Podcast on any podcast platform. We're available on Spotify, Stitcher, Acast, Podbean, anywhere you get your podcasts. And it's been really great. And we'll see you next time. Thank you. So I hope you found that as useful and informative as I did. If you want more information about coronavirus in general, then you can visit our webpage lshtm forward slash coronavirus. Also on this webpage, you can register your interest in a free online course all about COVID-19. Over three weeks, you will explore how the outbreak emerged, what was identified, what public health measures are in place and what is needed moving forwards. Also, just to say, we are working really hard to get to all of your questions that you've been sending in and we're doing our best to get back to you as soon as we can, so keep them coming. Thanks again for listening and bye for now.